Good morning. It's great to have you here with us this morning, watching at home. Wow, I'm Dan Burmeister. I'm the lead pastor here, and just want to tell you, tomorrow, as Dara mentioned, school starts, which I know is, is just crazy. So I figure we need some levity this morning, right, with all that's going on. So if it's okay, I want to introduce you to somebody, okay? Okay, can you bring him in? Babies and puppies this morning. I mean, does it get any better? Honestly. This is Eddie, okay? He's our Burmeister beloved family pet. He's wondering who you are, trying to figure that out. Um, let me tell you a few things about Eddie, okay? Eddie does not care that we're in a pandemic right now. What he cares about are the bunnies and the squirrels that are outside the window in the front. He doesn't think twice about the pandemic. He also doesn't think twice about his behavior, okay? Now, there is one thing that he really, we, we've seen he cares about. Here he comes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> There's one thing that he cares about that he's actually burdened by that makes us feel like he might just even have a little bit of a conscience. And I'll just be honest, it's, it's when he poops in the house, okay? And this has happened. He's five years old now. It's happened twice that I can remember. And each time it's happened, he, uh, we've been out and we've come back to find, like, this gift waiting out for us. And what he, has, what he does is when we come back, he, he's at the, at the front door, his ears are back, his head is down, he's obviously ashamed of what he's done, and I think if he could talk, he would say, I just got to get something off my chest, I got to tell you, I've left you a gift. Now, what happens is, when, when we see him like that, when we come home, when that's happened, he actually leads us into the house, right to the evidence. Okay, he does not try to blame it on someone else in the family. He takes full responsibility. That's just who he is. That's Eddie. All right, thanks, Eddie, for coming. You can give him a hand if you want. Okay, today we are going to talk about, I think, what, is, what I believe is one of the most disobeyed and ignored commands that God has called us to when it comes to loving each other, especially in our families. And that's the call to confess our sins to one another. This is a huge discipleship issue. And I really believe that if, if we can get our arms around this today, that we can see our, our, our families changed. We can see our church community changed in, in amazing ways for that, for that even to become life-giving. Unfortunately, I think for many of us, our pets actually live out this command better than we do. Why is that? Jesus has freed us, right, from sin. So why is it that we have problems coming to one another and just saying, this is what I've done? We're in a series called Dynamic Families. Our families are the people we spend most of our time around. Uh, John and Krista Castle began this series not long ago talking about the biblical basis for our relationships, that family relationships are actually expressed in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. And God reveals himself to us in family terms. And when we receive his son, Jesus, when we trust in him, in his work on the cross, God places us into this new family called the church. And it's where his children live out together what are called the one another's of the Bible. In this series, we're looking at several of them. We've been going through them. You can see them there. This is how brothers and sisters are supposed to live in community with one another. Today, we look at confession. What does it mean 
What does it mean to confess our sins to one another? What does it mean as husbands and wives? What does it mean as, as parents and children or as siblings? Now, the main text we're going to look at today is in James chapter 5. So you can go there with me. And as you're doing that, just a quick note about the context in James chapter 5. James is talking to, to, to the believers at this time, or very early on after, after Christ was here. He's talking to them about suffering, talking to them about how to live with integrity and wait for Jesus' return. And this is what we read in James chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So we're going we're gonna to focus in here on, on verse, really verse 15 and 16 today, but let's unpack the rest of this. In verse 13, you see James saying to those early believers in the church, listen, regardless of the circumstances, whatever's happening, we take things to the Lord. Okay, in suffering, we don't turn away from God to escape. We turn to him in prayer. In, in good times, when things are going well, we don't turn to other idols. We turn to the Lord in praise. In all things, we take it to the Lord. That's what it means to live in full relationship with him, fully integrated emotionally and spiritually. We get to verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Okay, a different condition here. Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You see, James instructs his, his early believers there that there's going to be times of sickness, and that sickness can actually be translated weakness. It can be physical. It can be spiritual. And in those times, believers are called to go to the church elders to pray for them and to minister and to anoint them with oil. Why the elders? Because the elders are the shepherds. They're the overseers of the body. That was God's design. And when a sheep is sick, the shepherd attends to its health. This does not mean that someone doesn't seek a doctor or a hospital. There were doctors back then. Luke was a physician. But God has absolutely, he's blessed us today to be able to do that. But there's something really significant about going to the elders in times of what I believe is significant spiritual or physical sickness. Now, we believe around here that that prescription is still for today. And you may not know this, but around here from time to time, we respond as an elder team when people reach out to us to pray over them. But notice the instructions given here. Elders are to pray. They're, it's not about the elders. They're seeking God as well in the name of Jesus. And what else? Anoint with oil. Okay, oil was symbolic in, that, in those days. It was used for uh, medicinal purposes too, to soothe and to heal. But oil is symbolic in the scriptures of healing, of anointing, the Holy Spirit. And we get to verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save, will restore the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. 
what? Maybe this is the first time you've heard that verse. What does this mean? Is this a guarantee that there's going to be physical healing on the spot? Or will the healing come later? Is it spiritual? Was this healing for a particular season in the early church? Is it for now? All churches have split over things, verses like these. And I wish I could tell you the exact answer, but I can tell you, I do believe that this is still for today. The elders' prayers that God calls us to in this passage can absolutely save. And so we should, in these circumstances, reach out to the elders. The Greek actually says to, to, to save, to make well, to revitalize. And so when the elders come together, we pray in faith. It's not about our words. We, we pray with the confidence that God has the power to heal if it's his will. And that God can raise up either in the moment or he can wait and it can come if that's his will. Now, if there's no physical healing, okay, does that mean that the prayer was not offered the right way? It wasn't said the right way. Not necessarily. Sometimes healing goes beyond the physical. And sometimes, frankly, it's just not God's plan for the healing to come in the way we see it. Now you get to the second half of verse 15. It says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, James introduces here a link, potential link between, between our sin and between spiritual and physical weakness. Hear this. Sin can lead to spiritual weakness, which can lead to physical weakness. We see this in Psalm 32 when David said, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. I was sapped. My body was sapped. My strength was taken. So verse 15 here tells us that, that forgiveness can happen in this context of meeting with the elders. So there's presumed kind of confession happening in this time. Now, we got to understand in all this, this does not mean that all, not all sickness, physical sickness, is a direct result of someone's sin. We read in John 9 that there are instances when that's not the case. It's part of living in a fallen world, too. But all of this is the reminder that the outcomes, which we tend to focus on, right, what's going to happen, they're in God's hands. What we are called to is the process of what he has asked us to do. And it's not in our ability to say the right words at the right time or to muster up some kind of faith. We're simply called as the elders to pray, confess, and trust God and trust his process. Now, James goes on to say, here well, let me read the end of 15 again and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed you see that it's confess your sins to one another therefore is a big word in this statement don't miss it in view of the possibility that the, the, the spiritual or the physical sickness came as a result of sin Believers should regularly confess their sins to one another. And they should pray for one another so that God may bring healing. Two things, confess and pray and do it regularly. So here we've got this, this command and this dynamic of confession to each other as shown as an important part of our physical and our spiritual wellness. Does confessing guarantee that you will not get sick? No. 
But if we do not confess our sins, and this is a big point, we leave open the opportunity for physical and spiritual weakness. Now let's talk about that word confess. That brings up a lot of images, right? You, you think the police TV shows, you've got the guy like with the lights around him and they're interrogating him. Confess, confess, confess. In our families, it's who took the toothpaste? Did you take toothpaste? No. Did you? No. Did you? No. That's impossible. Somebody had to take the toothpaste. Confess. The Greek word for confess here is homo legeo. It's a compound verb. It literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. To agree with someone about something. So confess your sins. Say the same thing to each other about your sins. Say the same thing to each other about your sins. We see that used, the word confess used when it says confess that Jesus is Lord. Say to each other the same thing, that Jesus is Lord. In regards to our sins, we say the same thing that God says about that sin to each other. We don't call it something else. We don't make light of it. If we lied, we say, I lied. And I know that's, that's, that's I'm agreeing with you that that's against God's standard. It's against who he is. It's against what he said. See, confession acknowledges the sin, but also what God says about the sin. And how do we know what God says about sin? Oh, John and Cresta said it great last week. We know because the word of God tells us. It shows us God's standard. And so it is vital in our lives that we are in the word of God, especially in these days in our culture that is continuing to, to move farther and farther away from what the word of God says. Now, there's a vertical component to, to, to confession, right? Vertical meaning it's between us and God. God calls us to confess to him. We say the same thing to God that he says about our sin. This is what we read in 1 John 1.5. Start a little bit down in verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, okay, so we're, we're walking in darkness, hiding, covering up, not confessing. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk that way, we lie, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, open up with our lives, doesn't mean we're perfect, we're still sinners, but if we open up our lives, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, if we cover it up, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess, we bring it to the light. He is faithful. If we say the same thing to each other about what God says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in case you forgot, verse 10 says, in case you forgot, if we say we've not sinned, if we try to cover it up, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So, so confession with God is, it's ongoing. It's part of walking in truth. It's part of walking in the light. And Adam and Eve give us a picture of what it means not to walk in the light when they hid from God after their sin. Now, a misconception is that followers of Jesus confess their sin to somehow gain God's acceptance or to get back right with him. And that's just 
that's not the case. Hebrews 10 tells us, Romans 8 tells us that Jesus died once for all, for all our sins. But God still calls us to confess, to say to him and to each other the same thing he says about us. If we fail to do that, we open ourselves up to spiritual, physical weakness. Numbness. Apathy. Hardness uh, in in our hearts from, from covering up secrecy. Lack of intimacy. Spiritual sickness. Some of us right now are walking around this way. Spiritual zombies, right? We've got things hidden in our life. And we're numb. And, and maybe even spiritually, maybe physically sick. Now another misconception is that since God forgives us in Christ, that we don't need to confess to each other, right? We did it to him. Why do we need that? Because this is the place the body of Christ is the place that we, we get help, that we have accountability, that we dispense grace to each other, that we encourage each other back. Every follower, every follower of Jesus is called to confess their sins to another. And I just believe it. I believe you'll lead, lead a defeated Christian life without this. Oh, Jesus has forgiven you. That's the power of the gospel. But if you walk in not in the light, it's a different story. It's a lot to think about. I think, uh, I think a good way to gauge uh, truly living in biblical community is to, to ask yourself, have I confessed, am I confessing my sins to one another? Let's bring this to our family units. Let's be honest, we can, we can hurt each other a lot in our family. We can, we can lie to each other, we can, we can slander, we can covet, we can be jealous of each other, we can talk in ways we shouldn't, we can steal, we can uh, abandon, we can physically lash out, we can cheat, we can throw people under the bus. As I read that list, maybe some of you could think of your families growing up and some of the things that happened in your families. The Burmeister family, we have our share. We have our share. Laura and I have fought hard in our marriage to overcome sin and hurt. And we're going to have to do it until Jesus comes again. Why? Because when you put two sinners in a family together, how could you not have that happen? If you put four or six or some of you eight, how could that not happen? For me, I'll tell you, I can look back through the years and see um, times when my attempts to, to bury or hide sin have just cost my family in, in, in tr- tremendous ways. Let me give you an example of, of covering up something. I can't remember if I told the story, so if I told it, you get to hear it twice. When the boys were little, we had the great ceiling fan incident. Um, that was when I was putting up a ceiling fan and I lost my cool. I'm, that's an understatement. I, words came out of my mouth that I would be embarrassed if you heard them. I, I lashed out in anger towards my family. I'd be embarrassed if you saw the way I behaved. And when it was all said and done, the incident was covered up. And yes, some of it was heated in the moment, but some of it was actually buried, unconfessed sin. I was in a battle at that time with pornography, trying to get rid of that. And, and that even affected, that breeds anger. Pornography breeds anger. 
and I sinned against my family and just went, life to me went back to normal. And you may say, what's the big deal? That happened in the past. But when that happened, I just opened up myself and I opened up my family to spiritual and to physical weakness. Really, I just left a big pile of poop in the house like Eddie does. Just left it sitting there. That's what unconfessed sin is. Just left there to rot. And incidents like these happen in our homes. They, they happen through our words and our actions because why? We're sinners. Let's talk about why we do not choose this path of confessing. And these are some strongholds I believe that Satan has in some of our lives. And the first is pride. Because confessing means that I've got to tell other people that I don't have it together, that I'm screwed up, that I'm a sinner. And that potentially changes my position, at least to my image. Secondly, it's fear. We fear men more than we fear what God says. We think, well, people will view us as weak. Failure's not an option. It will ruin my witness. These are the lies that Satan tells because not confessing will ruin your witness. It's hypocrisy. Third, we don't think that there's going to be consequences. Or we think the consequences are too great for God to have victory over them. We don't see the link to our spiritual and to our physical health. But not confessing. It brings danger to our souls into our families when we don't confess it will absolutely eat us from the inside out it'll start a process of rotting us proverbs 28 14 13 and 14 says this whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy blessed is the one who fears the lord always but whoever hardens his heart, this is deceit, right? This is covering up, not walking in the light, will fall into calamity. David said it as well in Psalm 32 when he said, listen to this, blessed. This is him reflecting, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I brought it to the light. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we don't confess, it will, it will eat us from the inside out. Second, unconfessed sin leads to to a double life. How could it not? How could it not? When you're separating yourself and behaving one way and then just not even acknowledging it as part of who you are and dealing with it. We saw this in the series on Samuel not long ago. We saw it in the life of David with Bathsheba. How David just compartmentalized that whole encounter to the point where Nathan had to come and just with the story, just knock him off to say, no, you're one person, and this is who you are. He was leading a double life. 
brothers and sisters, this is a heavy topic, but I want to bring hope to you today because Jesus died for our sin. He died so that we could walk in the light, so we could live out this, this dynamic of confession that can keep us spiritually healthy, physically healthy even. It brings victory. It brings a life. Here's the beauty of what confession brings. First of all, it brings freedom. No deceit in your heart. No deceit. Some of us, maybe even right now, are longing for that. We're holding on to something. We don't want to bring it to light. But there's a longing. There's a burden of carrying that. Second, talk about growth. You know, Paul said to the church in Corinth in, in 2 Corinthians 7, he said that their confession, their repentance brought an eagerness in them to clear themselves. It, it, it produced movement in them, a longing in them, a zeal, a, a, a desire to, to prove themselves innocent. That's what happens when we bring things to the light. There's like a, a surge of energy. It's off my chest. There's freedom now. I can grow again. And then finally, confession brings a bright, bright witness because the gospel shines the most when you expose the darkness. So we were meant, I believe, we were meant to confess often. You know, to reconcile relationships often. Now let's bring this to our families, okay? How about confessing between parents and children, okay? I'll ask the question, should parents confess personal sin with their children? Yes, I think they should. At the right time, when a child can understand, when they can process fully. We don't put an emotional weight on someone when they're too young. But absolutely, your child should not leave your, your house without knowing some of the sins that you've worked through. Addictions, uh, even adultery. Things like that. We cannot hide those things. See, what happens is kids often discover, right, about their parents that the very thing that their parents were pushing them on so hard about were the very things that their parents struggled with but never talked about. That's a double life. That's hypocrisy. How about when you sin against your children? Absolutely. If you, if you discipline and you do it in a harsh way, and, and, and most of the time we know it as parents, right? Absolutely. We, I had to do this with my boys, go back and say, Daddy said some things that, that's, that were not right. I need to apologize and confess to you because God tells me not to behave that, that way, not to talk like that. See, we look at it as the opportunity that we have to, to share the gospel message with our kids. You know, much of the root of generational sin, I believe, is unconfessed, buried sin. How about kids and teens? Perhaps you're watching this. Are you, what does God ask you to do? He calls you to the same thing, to confess your sins to your parents, to say the same thing that God says about it to your parents. If you took the toothpaste, you confessed. I lied. I was lazy. God doesn't want me to live that way. I'm coming to you now. You'd be surprised 
kids and teens, how much your parents, if you humbly come to them with something, will receive that. Siblings, let's talk about that. You want to change a relationship forever, live out what God says. If you have wronged your sibling, whether you're young or you're old, go back. Confess your sins regardless of what others do. Let's talk about husbands and wives, okay? Again, two sinners coming together as one. How could we not expect that there's going to be some things going on in that dynamic? Husbands, you're called to lay down your life for your wife. That means living in honesty and authenticity before her. That means confessing when you sin against yourself and against her. Wives, you're called as well to live honestly and authentically, not to hide. I think that the level of intimacy and closeness in a marriage is related to hidden, unconfessed sin. If you keep the sin buried, the rot will continue. I wonder how many marriages in the body of Christ are anemic because of this, this hidden, unconfessed sin that's not brought to light. What are some of those things? Well, they can start early. I mean, God calls young men and women, right? We're going to say it, to sexual purity before they're married. That's his standard. Now, in our culture, that is ridiculed. It's, it's laughed at at times. How will you not know is the message that if you're compatible in that area unless you're together. But God doesn't say that. His standard is different. And part of what I try to do when we go through premarital counseling with couples is to talk about past relationships and past areas that you've stumbled and you've sinned to bring those to light. Even a couple that's, that's struggled themselves to stay sexually pure before marriage, to bring that to God. Because if you don't, you live in secrecy. You start off your relationship with poop in the house. What are other ways we can sin? Excessive debt, overspending, abuse, porn. Let's talk about porn. Porn is still the great secret, right? Men in our culture and in the church are enslaved to pornography. They, women as well are involved in pornography. I don't want to leave that out. But, but men typically hide it from their wives and from others. And I'll just say it. At this point in the game, if you don't have an accountability partner, somebody that you're confessing to regularly, you will lead a defeated life. You'll lead a double life. And I'll go a step further and say, husbands and wife need to learn how to fight the battle of pornography together to eliminate the rot. Some of us have to have conversations even today about this and begin the discussion. Talk about other sins, fantasy, escapism, innocent relationships. It's really important um, that, that as we address confessing our sins to each other, that we, we do it in a humble way. If we go and confess to someone else, whether something is something we've done or some way we've, we've wronged them, that we choose a humble path and we don't manipulate, we don't demand a certain response. We just go and we humbly confess. In, in an, a, another way, when we receive confession from someone else, it's really important, especially when they first come, okay, to, 
to give them what you would want relationally, to, to receive it humbly, to receive it with grace. Oh, yeah, there's going to be things to work out. There's going to be feelings. There's going to be hard things. But if we create that environment, then we don't end up hiding things. I'm going to share, um, I want to share a video with you. And this is a, a real LCC story, and it's a tough one. Um, and it's about a couple that's, that's been through uh, a really hard uh, time with sin. And um, we've kept their identity uh, confidential. So we've got other people reading the story. But um, I hope you get to see here what a picture of, um, of confession looks like. Take a look. I've been putting this off because it's difficult to be confronted with a past that still haunts me. Each time I share this story, I battle shame and sorrow and dreams that hijack my sleep all over again, which is how I also know it's good to share, even if I'm not ready to do it face-to-face -face with the masses yet. Do I just say it? Do I provide some backstory and then come out and say it? We worked together. There was a lot of time for conversation while we worked. He challenged my dreams, sparked my musical soul, and told me all the great things I could and should be doing with my life. He made me feel safe. I thought I was finding myself. Finding myself three years into my marriage as a young adult, I chose to have an affair with this person that lasted two years, and I kept it from my husband for another seven years. I said it. I had an affair. I was generationally groomed in the art of deception, and I thought since the affair was in the past, I could move on with my life, like it never happened and our marriage would be fine. This is one of the many lies and layers of blindness I lived with and never recognized until the days that followed that one day, the day I told my husband what I had done. It was time, and I dreaded it. February 5th, 2015. Everything has been leading up to this point. I thought it was all over. I put it out of my mind. And then God wanted to restore, refine, redeem me. He's been bringing it all up, so I have to face it head on. I didn't realize secrets were destroying us and me. There is no easy way, and I don't even know how long the road back will be or if it will be there to take. I thought I never had to tell my husband, and we could live the rest of our lives just fine. Have you ever felt that sinking feeling like something terrible has happened? You'll understand. I always assume that it's me that's in trouble when I hear the words, I need to tell you something. I thought at first that I had done something wrong to warrant the seriousness of this talk. About seven years ago, I had an affair. The silence hung in the air like a wet wool blanket. I still love you, my husband responded. I still love you. Of all the responses I could have anticipated, this wasn't even on the radar. He had every right to leave me, and instead he responded with, I still love you. Hearing your spouse say the words, I have to tell you something, I had an affair, makes your brain go all kinds of places. Questions come to mind immediately, like, who is it with? Nick, from work. Well, how long was this for? About two years. When did it happen? It started New Year's Eve of 2007. How did it happen? I would leave early for work 
and when you were out of town. I asked those questions, but none of the answers really mattered in that moment. February 8th, 2015. Today was the day. This is the only way to have the marriage we need and the only way I can be the person God wants me to be. I don't see it as being an easy road, but a much better one. My thoughts were focused on only one thing. How could I be such a fool? How did she do this to me when I had no idea it was happening? Even after the affair ended, he was over at our house all the time, playing with the kids and bringing them gifts. I felt like everyone knew except me, and that's what felt worst of all. Knowing I had been played and was looked at as the fool every time he was around. Like, I'm your wife right now under your nose. Hearing her confession immediately moved me from ignorant fool to someone who knew they had been played. I was angry and sad. And aside from those two feelings, I was dead inside. I couldn't focus at work. I listened to heavy metal all day to fuel the anger. There was no longer trust in our relationship, and I didn't know if I'd ever be able to forgive her, even though I still loved her. It hurt to be in the know. It hurt a lot. But I think it would have hurt more the longer I had gone without knowing. I felt as if the last seven years had been a total lie. I kept thinking about moments we had had together, vacations we took together, and how they were all now this huge lie that had been told to me. I wanted to reject any good that was a part of those years, feeling like they were all now tainted. I remember leaving in the middle of church service, our kids and kids' life, and going out to the car to cry together and hold each other. We couldn't stand to sit in service and put on a face like everything was just fine, but we did. I remember what it was like to come back inside from that and have someone ask me if I was okay. It was so hard to hold this weight, just the two of us. I felt like now I was living a lie. I had to at least tell the people around me what was going on. We had weekly family dinners at my parents, so I wanted to tell them. We did. We told them together, and they opened up about some of the brokenness in their lives. I dreaded each one of these confessions his parents, mine, a few other safe people. It was mostly to new friends at LCC, and I expected people to forever look at me in disgust and write me off. And you know what the response was that I consistently got? It was hugs and tears and a deep sense of being known. And we needed that. My husband especially needed that. The weeks went by, and I moved through the stages of loss, denial, Anger, I stayed here for a while. Bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. This had happened, and I had better try to figure out what was next. I wanted to move our family across the country. I almost took a job far away from Ohio, just to have the chance to start over and put all this behind us. That's not what happened, though. Instead, it was a slow, painful process of God beginning to reveal areas in my life that were pretty ugly. As I began to see my selfishness and my brokenness, it opened up the door to thinking about forgiveness. If God could forgive me, maybe I could forgive her for what she did to me. It's never quite that easy, though. 
I came to a realization that I was only putting a wall between us by holding out on forgiveness. So I decided to forgive. The hard part about forgiveness is that it's not just a one-time thing. It's a choice to make day after day after day. I still have to make that choice even years later. Before forgiveness, though, came a lot of broken dreams. We had dreamed about working on something together. It was just too painful to think about doing that anymore, and I said that. I said I no longer had that dream, that I just didn't want to work together on something outside of our relationship. That hurts to admit that, and it hurt her to hear that. And then came the whisper of promises. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, and my people shall never again be put to shame. The Lord will pour out his spirit, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Five years later, I'm thankful for where we are. We're still working on our marriage, and there are still struggles as a result of the affair. God has taken me on a journey and showed me things that I wouldn't have learned outside of going through all of this. God's grace to give me what I wanted, control and faulty independence, and then lovingly but firmingly bring me back to his plan for me. Are we good now? Not quite. It still hurts, and there are residual effects. This story does not end with forgiveness, and it doesn't end with broken dreams either. Many people told us that it takes time to heal, and that's true. We have given it some time, and healing has happened. I still feel angry whenever I think about what happened. I've gone from trying to shove this anger down to trying to be okay with it, to explore the feeling of it, and to sit with God in the anger, like I know he is sitting with me in it. Despite this, we have learned to communicate a bit better. We remind each other that we are on the same team. We give each other reasons to trust each other. Oh, and God gave us a shared vision and something to work on as well. And we're seeing God's restoration. For the first time, we're dreaming together and living out God's dream for us doing something together, working on something together to hopefully share God's restoration with others. We feel more deeply together and with our people, which also makes it easier when the past unfairly comes back to haunt us. Our marriage has no secrets anymore and won't. We're training our kids in honesty even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. There's new life that comes from death, and we would never have experienced that on our own. It's still a choice to forgive every day. There are still times where I feel angry. Even in writing out some of my thoughts and feelings here, it brings up a lot of emotions. God continues to walk with us through all of this, though, and continues to bring life out of the dead. Just praise God. Praise, praise God. This is why... What you saw there was why Jesus died. And that's one of the 
the beautiful things about confession is when you confess, you tell the gospel story. You tell the story of what Christ has done. You say, I'm a sinner, that I need a Savior, that Jesus died for me, that Jesus has forgiven me. Every time you say that, you come back to the gospel again. Some of us are a moment away from bringing life and health to our family, to our relationship. It may be a road, but having walked it myself, it is, it is worth it. The alternative is death, spiritual sickness. Let's pray. God, we glorify you today because you have had the victory over sin and death. You paid a tremendous price for our sin. And you paid that price once for all, for all of our sin, God. And you've given us this beautiful way to live that involves sharing and opening our lives to each other. And it is countercultural, but it is life-giving. God, I pray by your spirit right now that you would bring to our hearts and minds things that are, are buried and hidden, things that are rotting, and you would inject your spirit to give us the courage to step out to others and to share our sin, to share our failure. You took what the enemy meant for evil and you made it for good, God. Yours is the victory. We glorify you and we want to live according to your plans.